0: Hi, I'm Jesse. We are in a series titled Reason for Hope. And this week's devotions have addressed experientialism. It is not a very strong apologetic tool. Granted, you do experience the Holy Spirit the moment that you're saved, but even Mormons have experientialism. Even atheists have their own experientialism. Like I went to this church and they were they were crazy bags, and so therefore Christianity is not true. I grew up Mormon and I had this emotional experience, therefore Mormonism is true. Experientialism is not a solid basis for truth because like we observed in our previous sermon with the M&Ms that were handed out, everybody got a little bag of M&Ms and was asked, okay, based on your sample, tell me how many blue M&Ms the local Mars factory distributes, how many brown, how many yellow, how many red, and no one's able to produce an accurate estimate because your sample size is too small. If you base all of your interpretation of truth just on your own individual experience you have an even smaller sample size than that and you're drawing you're making conclusions on even bigger operation than a local mars factory experientialism is not a good basis for truth again with the added caveat you still must experience the holy spirit in order to be saved that experience is not necessarily emotional you can be converted by the Holy Spirit of God and not feel emotion. There's nothing in scripture that says your conversion experience has to be an emotional one. Here is Matthew chapter seven. This builds upon what we addressed yesterday where atheists have their own experientialist apologetic. Like, yeah, I grew up in the church and I left that behind. Or I like one atheist that I publicly debated, uh, I went to Bible college and then I left it all behind, right? Like being a dropout doesn't make you more of an expert in something than the guy who's devoted to it. When you drop out of something, that makes you a failure in that one thing. Here's Matthew chapter seven, Jesus speaking about the kingdom. Enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. All right? what did we say at the beginning of this? You evaluate an apologetic series based on the fruit that it bears. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and so you'll recognize them by their fruit. All right, what are the ultimate effects that this worldview is having this testimony? what, What are the ultimate effects this testimony has? Verse 21 is one of the scariest verses in the Bible for pastors. It's it's like the, the biggest fear in a pastor's life is that those who sit under our preaching would be described in the very next verse I'm about to read. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Or some translations render it workers of iniquity or evildoers. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I never knew you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is the scariest passage in the Bible for pastors because all of us want those who sit under our preaching and teaching to know the full gospel, that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven is scary because it's describing a false experience. That's why experientialism doesn't make for a very good apologetic basis. You can have a verbal confession, Lord, Lord, but not everyone who says Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it say? Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. We saw this in the book of James. You're gonna see it again as we come up. Faith is accompanied by works because it's real. Because you have faith, that faith is going to evidence itself by the good works that you perform. Now, you're you're not saved because you do good works. Rather, you do good works because you're saved those good works, that fruit that you bear, that's evidence that's symptomatic of the inner conversion that's taken place. So if there's only a nominal calling out Lord, Lord, but there's no actually doing God's will, then there's no salvation. All right but these guys even seem to be party to some pretty incredible stuff but but Lord, didn't we didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And drive out demons in your name. I mean, yeah, you look at verse 22, it seems to get even scarier because you're like, I've never been a part of a demonic exorcism. I don't know if I've ever prophesied. I've never seen, I've never performed miracles. These guys have performed miracles and, and exorcisms and prophesied and they're not saved. But what chance do I have? Look closely at what they're bringing forward. Look, look at the fact that they're bringing up actions at all in order to rationalize their salvation. Yeah, but I prophesied in your name. I should be saved. I drove out demons using your name. I should be saved. I performed many miracles in your name. I should be saved. It's like the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? They're presenting a legalistic salvation, but they never knew God. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. See, that's the very next verse, verse 23. They're, the, the fact that they're listing things that they've done indicates that they don't understand salvation. They think of it as transactional in nature. Moreover, to prophesy in God's name is not necessarily indicative of salvation either, by the way. Just ask Balaam. Okay, Balaam is this prophet for hire. You can see this, go to jessecummelministries.com on our YouTube channel. You can find my series, Shadows in the Sand, where I taught Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you can meet Balaam. He's a prophet for hire. And God works through Balaam. Balaam never confesses Christ. In fact, he's gonna come back later and try to betray Israel after speaking blessing upon them. God spoke through that pagan prophet for hire. He can speak through anyone. Go back to our series on John. Caiaphas, spelled C-A-I-P-H-A-S, right? Or I'm missing an A, sorry. Caiaphas was the high priest who was trying to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus in John chapter 11. And he ends up speaking a prophecy on God's behalf. Okay, the fact that God would speak through you doesn't say much because a pagan prophet for hire, whom I envision as Dwight Schrute dressed as Belchnickel, and then Caiaphas, who was overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus, were also they also prophesied. It doesn't mean, the fact that you prophesied doesn't mean that you're saved, man. Okay, moreover, the fact that you would drive out demons in his name, there were people who tried to drive out demons in the book of Acts as well. The seven sons of Sceva tried to secondhand drive out demons uh, in, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Okay, that doesn't mean that you're saved. And then the many miracles and, and do many miracles in your name, they're, they're, they're taking credit for miracles, which is totally possible. God may have worked something miraculous through them, but that doesn't mean that they're saved. They never knew God. So experientialism is, a, is not a sound basis for faith. If your whole salvation is based on an experience, and you've never actually confessed Jesus as Lord, you don't have the Holy Spirit of God living within you, then your own personal apologetic may be insufficient. Matthew 7 21 through 23 tells it to us straight, and then verses 24 through 27 paint the dichotomous picture of somebody who gets it and someone who doesn't. This is someone who stays faithful to God, whose house is built upon the rock the rain comes and the wind blows and and it beats against the house. But because the foundation was on the rock, the house doesn't collapse. So a Christian testimony that remains faithful through the wind and through the rain and through the storm and the difficulty is built upon the rock. But the fact that someone's house would crash shows that they were never built upon the rock. They are Matthew 7 Christians. They may have said, Lord, Lord, but they were lying when they confess Jesus as Lord. If Jesus were Lord, they would have repented from sin. If Jesus were Lord, they'd have remained steadfast upon the rock. Rather, their apostasy, their departure from Christianity proves, as per 1 John, that they never really knew Christ. Experientialism does not make for a very good apologetic. There is an experience of the Holy Spirit within salvation, but it leads to conviction for sin and repentance from it. Many times, yeah, an emotional experience is a part of that, but there's no scripture that says you have to have an emotional experience in order to be saved. In fact, these guys had some pretty profound experiences, and as per Jesus's words, they were never saved. Experientialism is not as strong and apologetic as you and I might think. So when you share the gospel, when you practice apologetics, remember Matthew 7, it's a narrow gate, and few find it. Most people aren't going to find it. That's, th- that's consistent with what we see worldwide. Even, even though roughly like a third of the world's population might even profess to know Christ, not every one of those people who professes Christ is saved. So Christianity is even smaller in reality than it is on paper worldwide. Moreover, we know that those who remain faithful evidence their salvation. So encourage, as you practice apologetics, repentance and steadfastness, confess Jesus as Lord. Build your house upon the rock. There's hope here. There's hope, especially in verse 24. Go share this hope today with someone as you practice apologetics.